0: Throughout Scripture, in both the Old and the New Testaments, there's this line that is repeated over and over again that has to do with how the people of God are called to approach their everyday life. Any of us who have spent a significant time around the church, we've we've heard this line at some point or another, or at least some translation of it. And that line is, The righteous shall live by faith, or the just shall live by faith. Our second passage this morning comes from a letter that really hammers home that concept. And it would be inadequate to to summarize the letter of James in just two words, but if I were to try, those two words would be practical Christianity. He wrote this kind of sweeping summary to to early Christians about what it looked like to, to live out what we believed each and every day. The second chapter of James reminds us that faith requires action, that they go together. Starting in chapter 2, verse 14, we read this. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that, and and they shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Thanks be to God. The caller ID software on most of our phones has gotten much, much better over the years. But as a kid, I remember sitting down for family dinner and sometime between 5 or 6 p.m., the telemarketers, they just knew. They knew that that was the time to get us, that someone would be home. It was like clockwork. Then the digital phones came along, and, and then you could actually see the number of who was calling, and, and you could screen it, and you could say, you know what, I'm ignoring that call. I, I don't know who it is. And then came the ability to block those numbers, which most of us have on our cell phones today. But still, there, there are some companies that have learned to outsmart the system, to outsmart the software, they figured out how to get past the logarithms, and occasionally they must actually get through to someone because they, they keep calling. You, you can tell whenever it's one of those calls be, because you, you pick it up and you, you say hello and there's this, this long pause. It's just too long for there to actually be a person on the other line. Hello? I used to feel bad for telemarketers when they called my house as a kid. Because my dad, he would would actually talk to them. He would actually try to get to know them. I'm not sure what he does with the robocalls when they call now. I remember reading in one of my business classes in college that the goal of a sales call, especially of a a cold call, was was twofold. First, the, the goal was to convince the person on the other line of a sense of urgency. They needed whatever you had. And secondly, it was to get them to stay on the phone as long as possible. The longer that they stayed on the phone, the longer they were on that line, the more likely they'd say yes to whatever it was that you were selling. Now, whether it's on a a cold call or, or talking with a car salesman in a parking lot, you know when someone is just trying to sell you something or when they're actually trying to help you out, when they're actually really trying to give you something you need. It's the difference between trying to just meet a quota and and meeting actual needs, or between being fake and authentic. Motives matter. It's true when we engage in salespeople, and it's true when we engage in our neighbors. So when Jesus answers the expert of the law about the greatest commandment, he, he doesn't say, love your neighbors and make sure they become followers of Christ. Nor does he say, love your neighbors, but only if you get along with them. He says, love your neighbors, period. End of the story. End of the sentence. There's no condition. No expectation. There's no ulterior motive. Now, we absolutely want every person we know, every person that we know to know Jesus. We have to pair the great commandment with the love of God and neighbor, the great commission with the great commandment. We have to, we have to pair those two concepts together. Love God, love neighbor, make disciples. They go hand in hand with one another. But when we look at these, these words from James, we, we understand that the way we do that is by putting our faith in action. One of my favorite books about the ways that churches can transform their communities puts it like this. It's important to remember that we don't engage in the needs, dreams, and plans of our communities so that they will become Christians. Rather, we engage the community because we are Christians. We don't serve to convert, but we serve because we have been converted. Most people in our neighborhoods, they, they fall into to one of three categories. They, they already have a faith community that they, they belong to, whether it's a, a Christian church or, or something else. That's one group. They, they, they used to have a faith community, but, but they don't anymore for whatever reason. Maybe they are hurt by it. Maybe they just grew disenfranchised with it, but they're not actively involved. It. Or they never went to church in the first place and they have no intentions of going. Now, the people who are in those second and, and third groups who have lost interest in the church or never had any in the first place, they usually have had at least one negative experience with church, at least one negative experience with religion. So there's already a healthy dose of skepticism when it comes to Christianity when we approach them. When we live out the Great Commission while fulfilling the Great Commandment, we live as the salt and light that we heard about in our first reading earlier from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. But we, we've talked about this before. It, it, it's been a while, but, but Jesus doesn't say you ought to be light or you could be salt or you should be salt. He says, y'all are salt. Y'all are light. Jesus always intended Christian communities to be the means by which his love, his mercy, his grace would be made known to the world. That's what both the Great Commission and Commandment are all about. Now, in Jesus's day and when James wrote, there was this common ethic that was driven by a Greek philosophy that still exists today. That ethic said, work to become who you should be. It's the narrative that drives us to compare ourselves to other people or reinforces the, the concept or the idea that we will never be good enough. And we need to keep working. The salt and light ethic is a little different. It says God created you a specific way. Work to live into the identity that you have been given since the beginning of time. Put your faith into action. Salt preserves, it purifies, and when provided or when applied correctly, adds flavor. But if it's just sitting there on the counter, it's useless. Light, it doesn't draw attention to itself. It points elsewhere. Our motives matter. We don't love our neighbors to get noticed or to try to pull some sort of bait and switch with them, pretending, pretending to be one thing before revealing something else. We work to love them because we were created to love them. James, he uses both Abraham and Rahab as examples of people who put their faith into action, who lived as salt and light. Abraham, the father of faith, an insider who was willing to sacrifice his only son, Isaac, his own son, Isaac, simply to provide obedience. And Rahab, who most of James's readers would have seen as an outsider who took a risk hiding two spies that Joshua had sent into Jericho. They paired belief with deeds acting on their faith without any sort of assurance that things would be right, that things would be okay. So my encouragement for us this week, our Lenten challenge is this. What is something you can do to show a neighbor tangibly that they are loved? Is it writing a note? Is it taking in their garbage cans? Is it cutting their lawn? Is it running an errand for them? Simply knocking on the door and checking in with them. What can you do? Years ago, I was diagnosed with a medical condition that required me to to cut out sodium from my diet. And at first, it was incredibly difficult to not eat salt. The doctor recommended this potassium-based substitute called new salt. And let's just say it was obvious that it wasn't salt. There was a line on the box that read new salt, a sodium-free substitute that we believe looks, tastes, and sprinkles like real salt. The company tried. It tried to make something for people like me, but it was obvious it was fake. Our communities desperately need authentic salt and wine. Jesus tells us that we are those things and James reminds us that we are called to act out our identity. So this week, as we approach our neighbors, don't use some sort of sales pitch, don't use some sort of hidden agenda, be who you are created to be. And remember that our motives Matter A man.